Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is episode 59 of the Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers podcast. We're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities? Statutory law cases, cases from the courts of appeals. We have been we haven't done a lot of episodes recently. There haven't been a lot of cases from the court of appeals and the Supreme Court and so on. And uh, and I mentioned that last episode. And you know, there's an old adage in law enforcement: never talk about how it's very quiet uh, because you will get uh, that's you know bad luck, right? We got a lot of cases in the last couple of weeks from the courts of appeals. In fact, probably going to do another episode uh, next week as well on two new cases from the U.S. Supreme Court on use of force. They're both qualified immunity cases. They're both really interesting. So stay tuned for that. We'll do that next episode, I think. Uh, But this episode, we're going to talk about a really interesting case from the Court of Appeals in Virginia from last week. It's a case out of Stafford involving the exigent circumstances exception to the search warrant requirement. And it is a case that I think a lot of people will find very challenging. Uh, it is a very, um, it, the court does not find that there were exigent circumstances in this case. And when I tell you these facts, I think you, you may find these very frustrating. But it reminds me of a case from the Virginia Supreme Court from all the way back in um, 2008 called Robertson. So we're going to talk about both of those cases today. Uh, because, you know, I think our reaction nowadays to this new case, White versus Commonwealth, which is from October 12th from the uh, Virginia Court of Appeals, <clears throat> you know, it has the same kind of visceral frustration that I think law enforcement officers I remember had about the Robertson case. So let's jump into the case. I'm going to tell you what happened in the case. I'm going to tell you about the ruling. And then I'm going to talk about Robertson. And then we'll come back and sort of discuss why did the court decide what it did here in White. So what happens in the White versus Commonwealth case? So this is a case out of Stafford where police respond to a call for a man who had reportedly beat a woman in the street with a gun. So it's a pretty serious charge. They're a pretty serious allegation. They respond within just a couple of minutes. There's a large crowd that's gathered outside. Uh, the victim and the suspect, neither of them are there. Uh, but the crowd describes how the man had had the gun. Some people say he just pointed it. He didn't hit her. Uh, some people say... Um, that he had beaten her with the gun. Some people say he had stomped her on the head and then fled. Uh, But most everybody said, look, we're not getting involved. But if you want to know where they are, they're up in this apartment. So they don't want to get involved in it other than to point out where the people are. And so police go to the apartment. They get to the apartment door. They bang on the door. They don't get a response. They continue banging the door. Uh, It's it's, it's an apartment in an apartment complex. They're hitting the door so hard that they testify ultimately that the door is shaking and basically anybody on that floor could hear it. They were hitting it so hard. Ultimately, then, the victim comes to the door. She's carrying a child and she has a split lip. Her lip is swollen. It's not bleeding, but, I mean, it's, she's, you know, it's clearly, she's clearly been hit. She denies that there's been any altercation at all. But they say, hey, look, you know, a lot of people told us that you were hit, that you were stomped. She said, no, 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 it was just verbal. It was just verbal. They ask her, is there anybody else in the apartment? Um, And at at that point, they say, hey, look, can we come inside? Is there anybody else inside? And she says, no, you can't come inside. And she sort of slides herself out of the apartment so that uh, nobody else can see in or get in and then closes the door behind her. She's very uncooperative. She won't help them with the investigation. She's very evasive. She won't identify who the man is. Um, She won't tell them whether he's even in the apartment. 
And when they ask for his name, she gives them, they don't realize it at the time, they figure out later on, but she gives them a false name. So within 20 minutes of the first call to 911, 12 to 15 officers are on the scene. And they set up a perimeter, positioning some officers near the windows at the rear of the apartment. <clears throat> they decide that they're going to make forcible entry into the apartment. But because he's got a gun, they decide that they want to get a ballistic shield. And the ballistic shield was with another officer who was about six miles away. So they have to wait for him to get there. Once the shield arrives, they make forcible entry. And at the point that they make forcible entry in the apartment, uh, at that point, it's about 45 minutes after the officers had first arrived in the scene. And it was about 30 minutes after the officers had persuaded the victim to leave the apartment. Now, before we get to the rest of the case, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember the time. And I want you to remember, too, that there's 12 to 15 officers in the scene who've got a perimeter set up and who've cordoned off the apartment. Now, they get inside. They do a protective sweep. Uh, they see drug paraphernalia. They see uh, they decide to get a search warrant at that point based on the drug paraphernalia. They don't leave the scene. And this is interesting. They don't leave the scene to get the search warrant. And the court case here is not clear about this. I, I do at some point want to talk to the people in Stafford and see if I can get a little more story on this. But <clears throat> the way that it's described by the Court of Appeals, they call in the information necessary to obtain the search warrant, and the warrant is issued. So clearly this isn't a situation where they're getting a telephone search warrant. Right? We don't have telephone search warrants in Virginia, but the fact that some states can get telephone search warrants is important for the U.S. Supreme Court when they're making decisions about exigent circumstances. You know, they when you see them make decisions about exigent circumstances, you'll often see them talk about, you know, did the officers have the ability to telephone in and call a magistrate or a judge and get a warrant over the phone? And if they can, then that makes it much more difficult to apply the exigent circumstances exception because you could just call and get a warrant over the phone. Here, clearly, they didn't do that, so they must have called another officer reported the facts to that officer, and then that officer must have done an affidavit, um, is what I'm assuming. I don't know that to be true. But either way, they don't leave the scene to get the search warrant. A search warrant is issued, <clears throat> and then under the search warrant's authority, they start searching the apartment. They find the, a gun. They find heroin. And the defendant is charged. He moves to suppress the evidence, and the trial court finds that the officers had exigent circumstances to conduct the search. Now, we're talking about this case today because it goes to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals reverses. And they find here, absent other facts such as sounds emanating from the dwelling indicating criminality, uh, facts indicating urgency, or facts indicating exigency, the decision of the dwelling's occupants to stand on their constitutional prerogatives to refuse to answer the door or to refuse to allow police to enter once they have answered the door does not provide a basis for conducting exigent circumstances. And so they find this case, uh, they, they suppress the evidence in this case. So, you know, that this is a kind of a frustrating ruling, but I want to talk about why the court decides this, because they go through, this is a very long opinion, and they go through the factors for exigent circumstances in great detail. But I think before we get to this case, it would be helpful for us to go all the way back to 2008 and talk about the case of Commonwealth versus Robertson, <clears throat> which is another exigent circumstances case. This one from the Supreme Court of Virginia involving a guy with a gun who had clearly been dangerous and had been clearly engaging in 
um, uh, activity that was an ongoing, very serious threat with a gun that he was going to kill somebody, that you know, he was going to shoot somebody. And the court, again, in that case, found no exigent circumstances. Why are they making these rulings? Well, in Robertson, this is a case where um, Mr. Robertson had consumed a fifth of alcohol. He had threatened to kill himself. His girlfriend walked out, called 911. And while she's on the phone with 911, she can hear gunshots from inside the house. So Danville police show up. They show up around 1 o'clock in the morning. And they surround the house. They learn that Mr. Robertson, the defendant in this case, is alone in the house. And uh, the SWAT team shows up. I mean, everybody's there. There's extensive confrontation. And about 35 minutes of the confrontation is actually on video, which back in 2008 was kind of a big deal. I mean, obviously nowadays, lots of stuff's on video. But back in 2008, for about 35 minutes of this to be on video was kind of a big deal. And it reflected that he was intoxicated. He was emotional. He was cursing at the officers from an open window. He was breaking glass panes. Um, he claimed to have a shotgun. He admitted to having shot the sh- fired the shotgun uh, in the past. He hadn't. He didn't shoot it while the police were there. But they coax him out onto a windowsill. They get him to sit on a windowsill. And when he's sitting on the windowsill, they hit him with a taser. Uh, his legs are hanging out the window. So <clears throat> after being hit by the taser, he falls out the window. And police take him into custody. When they get him into custody, uh, he, they ask him, is there anybody else inside the house? And he says, no. And remember, the girlfriend had also said that there was nobody else inside the house. At that point, though, officers break through the barricaded front door. They enter the residence. And then once they get inside, they find the shotgun. Uh, and they seize the shotgun. And they also take photographs of bullet holes in the walls and the ceiling of the house. And that's what he moves to suppress. Now, again, they don't have a search warrant for entering into the house. They breaking into the house because, you know, they're the SWAT team. They've surrounded the house. They're concerned, obviously, that there might be weapons or people inside that might hurt them. So when they when the court says, well, what's the reason for entry? The answer is given is, well, we're doing a protective sweep. We're doing a, and that obviously the purpose of a protective sweep is to make sure there's no people or weapons that might be a danger to the team. But in this case, when the Virginia Supreme Court suppresses the evidence, they find that there's no articulable facts to indicate that the house has anybody inside who pose a danger to the people at the arrest scene, to the people who've created this perimeter outside. And the Virginia Supreme Court reviews in some detail the factors for exigent circumstances, for the exigent circumstances exception, that had been laid out in a case called Verez versus Commonwealth, which was a Virginia Supreme Court case from 1985. So the Verez case lists out a bunch of ex- <clears throat> bunch of uh, factors to look at, or a bunch of uh, facts that might support an entry without a search warrant based on the exigent circumstances exception. And this Verez case is cited over and over again by courts in Virginia to uh, analyze whether or not, in fact, exigent circumstances exist. So the Verez factors, uh, and there's about 10 of them, um, I can read them off real quick, but we're going to talk about them later on. But just real quick there, the degree of urgency involved and the time required to get a warrant, the officer's reasonable belief the contraband is about to be removed or destroyed, the possibility of danger to others, including police officers that guard the site, information that the possessors of the contraband are aware of, the police may be on their trail, whether the offense is serious or involves violence, whether the officers reasonably believe the suspects are armed, 
believe the suspects are armed, whether there is at the time of entry a cleared showing of probable cause, whether the officers have a strong reason to believe the suspects are actually present in the premises, the likelihood of escape if the suspects are not swiftly apprehended, and the suspect's recent entry into the premises after hot pursuit. You don't get exigent circumstances from just one of these factors, but these 10 factors are sort of a roadmap for a court. They're not all the factors, right? There could be something else that's not listed there, but it's sort of a roadmap for a court to analyze it. Are there exigent circumstances in this case or not? Well, here the court says in Robertson, you know, the guy who's been tased, who's been knocked to the ground, there's no reason to believe that contraband is about to be removed or destroyed because there's nobody else inside the house. Uh, there's little danger to anybody else left to guard the site because, again, there's nobody else inside the house. There's no likelihood of the suspect escaping because he's in custody. And there's no hot pursuit because, again, he's in custody. So the court says here there's no evidence of an exigency that justifies breaking through the barricaded door of the home without obtaining a warrant. We're teaching this case to uh, a SWAT team at the time. And they were just absolutely aghast. They couldn't believe the court's ruling in this case. And they said, you know, is there anything we can do about this? Is it going to be fixed? It's so bad. But, you know, if you look at the case, what the court's really saying here is just because you're dealing with somebody who has done something very violent and dangerous with a firearm doesn't necessarily mean you have an exigent circumstance. Uh, you know, just because SWAT is there, just because you're using SWAT-style tactics, just because you're using, you know, the shield, ballistic shield and that kind of situation and dealing with an armed person doesn't necessarily mean you have an exigent circumstance if there is still time to get a warrant. In other words, exigency means emergency means there's no time for me to get a warrant. I have to act right now. I have to do this. There's no way I can stop and get a warrant. Uh, because of the threat to public safety, the threat of destruction of evidence, the threat that somebody's going to escape. Well, in Robertson, there's no evidence, that there's, there's no indication there's anybody else outside the house. He's on the ground. He's outside the house. He's in custody. The girlfriend is safe. Um, and so what is it that's saying, if we go get a search warrant right now, we run the risk of evidence being destroyed. Uh, we run, and we have probable cause. We can explain, here's the probable cause that there's a risk that there's evidence gonna be destroyed, uh, that somebody's gonna get hurt or that someone's gonna flee. Sure, it's always possible that there's evidence inside that's gonna be destroyed. It's always possible that there's somebody else there. But the possibility isn't what drives the exigent circumstances exception. It is the probable cause to believe that there is a threat to public safety, that there's a, uh, a threat of destruction of evidence or a threat that someone's gonna escape. And remember, probable cause doesn't mean more likely than not. And, and a lot of people, I think, get hung up on that. You know, oh, probable cause is a really high standard. No, it's, it's not really that high of a standard. It doesn't mean more likely than not. It just means a fair probability. Uh, and the courts have been very clear about that. So is there a fair probability, uh, you know, sufficient evidence to lead a, a reasonable officer to believe that evidence may be destroyed uh, or that there might be somebody who's going to flee or that there's a threat to public safety? So Robertson suppresses the evidence. So let's go back here to the White case. Well, just like in Robertson, the court in the White case goes through those 10 Verez factors in great detail and, uh, and, dis and sort of analyzes, okay, so here in this case with this woman who got uh, struck by the guy with the gun in the parking lot, uh, she then is in the apartment. They get her out of the apartment. Then they surround the apartment. The guy's inside. Under these 10 Verez factors, uh, are there, in fact, exigent circumstances? And again, 
you'd look at all of the factors together in the totality of the circumstances. The court in great detail, this is a you know 22 page opinion, goes through each of the factors. They look at, for example, the degree of urgency involved. <clears throat> and here they're looking at, is this an emergency situation such as continuing criminal activity, somebody who requires medical care or the destruction of evidence that will likely worsen if the officers take the time necessary to get a warrant. And here, you know, if there's no imminent change to the circumstances about to occur, and the status quo can be maintained while the officers seek a warrant, then in the eyes of the court, the situation is not urgent. If they can maintain the status quo the way it is, uh, then they need to go get a warrant. And here, the court, the court sort of argues, once the woman's been removed from the apartment and the passage of time from the parking lot has already been 45 minutes, the situation in the court's eyes was less urgent when the officers entered without a warrant than when they first arrived. It's really important to the court here that 45 minutes pass from the assault to when the officers uh, reported assault to when the officers actually break down the door. Uh, because at this point, 45 minutes have passed without anything going on. He hasn't assaulted anybody. There's no presentation to a gun. He hasn't communicated with anybody. Uh, the woman's outside the apartment. She's been outside the apartment for about 30 minutes. Um, the court says at this point, it doesn't look like an emergency anymore when that much time has passed. And again, it's important to the court that the officers could have just called in and gotten a warrant, apparently, because that's what they ultimately do. Um, the court here says the estimated 35-minute drive time to and from the magistrate's office is immaterial because when the officers on the scene finally decided to get a warrant, they got one without driving to the magistrate's office. And the officers didn't obtain, didn't leave the location to obtain the warrant, but rather were called to obtain the search warrant. And so the fact that they could do that was very important. In fact, the court says the fact that they were able to do it by making a phone call was significant. Um, and in fact, the court then sort of calculates the time and they say, well, if the officers, when they first arrived, had immediately sought a search warrant, they still could have gotten to the apartment 45 minutes after arriving because that's how long it took to get a search warrant ultimately in this case. So they didn't think that the that having that or requiring the officers to get a search warrant would in any way have impeded the officers eventual conduct. The court then looks at the other Verez factors, you know, is there reasonable belief that contraband's about to be removed or destroyed? Well, no, not in this case, right? There's a gun inside, and sure in theory he could have destroyed the gun, but how was he going to do that? Was there probable cause to believe he was going to destroy the gun? It's not that easy to destroy a gun. It's not like, you know, you can't eat a gun the same way you can eat drugs. Is there a possibility of danger to others? Well, do they have probable cause to believe there's a danger to anybody else? There's no indication, again, just like in the Robertson case, that there's anybody else inside the apartment. Um, and the only violence had been the violence outside in the parking lot against the woman, and the woman was in safe, was safe in police uh, care. Was there information that possessors of contraband were aware that police was on their trail? Yes, absolutely in this case. So that Verez factor definitely mitigates in favor of exigent circumstances. But like I said, one factor alone rarely is ever going to give you an exigent circumstance. How serious is the offense? How serious is the offense? Well, here you have uh, a firearm and a domestic assault. That's serious. And the court says, yeah, absolutely, we think this is a serious offense. But just like in Robertson, uh, here, the victim was separated away. She had gotten free. And uh, there had been a lot of time that had passed between the offense and when the officers ultimately make their forced entry. So to some degree, the seriousness does not help the officers in this case. 
Is there a reasonable belief the suspect is armed? 100%. Absolutely. And the court agrees. And is there a clear showing of probable cause at the time of entry? Oh, yeah, definitely. And in the fact, the court here says the information available to the officers more than amply provided probable cause that he engaged in criminal activity uh, and that the gun would be found in the apartment. And interestingly, by the way, and I think that is an interesting conclusion uh, by the court. I mean, here, remember, the victim never admits to the assault. She never she keeps saying there was no assault. Uh, but the court here says the statements of the people in the parking lot and then the fact that she's uh, clearly been struck when she talks to the officers, and then she makes these false evasive statements outside. She provides a false name for the suspect. All of that information together for the off for the court is definitely probable cause that this criminal offense took place. Is there reason to believe he's in the house? Yes, definitely. Again, court's totally on board. He's in the house, probable cause that he's in the house, probable cause that he's armed, probable cause that he committed this offense probable cause of a serious offense, right? So they don't, they're not disagreeing in any way with the officer's conclusions about, I've got a serious case with a guy inside who's assaulted this woman, despite the fact that she said she, she wasn't assaulted, that he's armed, uh, and he's done something uh, that requires us to act. So, I mean, with all of those factors, you know, all these various factors the court's agreed with, why is the court concluding in this case that nevertheless, the officers didn't have exigent circumstances to enter. Well, here the court starts looking at the likelihood of escape if he's not apprehended, right? Because we, we know there isn't a danger of contraband or a realistic danger. We don't have probable cause of a danger of contraband being destroyed because he's not going to destroy the gun, not that easily, not in a short period of time. So is there a likelihood of escape? Well, the court here writes, there is barely even a theoretical possibility, let alone a likelihood that the defendant could have escaped if the officers had taken time to get a warrant. The court here notes that you can get an a warrant easily without leaving the scene, and 12 to 15 officers had formed a perimeter around the apartment. The windows and the front door were the only means of ingress and egress from the third floor apartment, and multiple officers had those points guarded. So there was no realistic possibility of escape if the officers had taken the steps to obtain the warrant. And so then the court says, well, what's the indication that there's a danger to somebody else, right? There's nobody else inside the apartment. There's no other facts here. There's no other facts like sounds emanating from the dwelling, indicating criminality, urgency, whatever, to indicate that there's somebody who's getting hurt inside. There's some threat to somebody inside. And so ultimately here, just because there's a firearm inside doesn't mean that there's an exigent circumstance, right? And that kind of takes us back to Robertson. In Robertson, Robertson himself was in custody and his shotgun was inside the house, but he was outside. In this case, White's inside, his gun's inside, but White hasn't actually shot the gun. He used it to beat somebody with it. Um, and I think that's important. I think if he had shot at somebody, maybe the court would look at this a little differently. But here, there's no indication that he's an ongoing threat to anybody such that if they do, if they go to get a warrant, there's probable cause that there'll be a danger to the community that somebody else will get hurt. And so uh, the court here writes, there's no indication that the firearm, which had been displayed in an altercation 45 minutes earlier, presented an imminent and active danger. Um, the court here writes in a footnote, a, fi a firearm always has the potential to be used in a dangerous manner. However, to provide the basis for exigency, there must be information suggesting that such use is immediate and more than theoretical. 
Here, no shots had been fired that evening. The other participant in the altercation had been separated by both time and space from White, and White had made no threats to anyone, verbal or otherwise, after officers had arrived on the scene. And so here the court finds no exigent circumstances. Now again, I think that it's very easy to read this case and be frustrated. But the real question you want to ask yourself, there's nothing you can do about that. The real question you want to ask yourself is, okay, so what does this mean for me as a law enforcement officer in Virginia uh, when I'm considering whether I have exigent circumstances or whether I need to get a search warrant? Well, there's a couple of things about this case, I think, that are notable. And I think that you want to remember when you're deciding whether you have exigent circumstances when you're out on the scene. And the first most important factor, I think, here is that you had, within a matter of minutes, 12 to 15 officers on the scene who were able to cut off all means of escape from this third floor apartment, the doors and the windows, and create a barricade where the suspect could not get out. And they were able to very quickly secure the victim and, uh, and, and determine whether there's anybody else in the apartment besides the suspect. So that's really important, right? Here you have no means of escape. There's no way the guy's getting out. And the one person who's in danger, uh, and her child, obviously, she takes her child with her, uh, is secured very quickly. So you're surrounding a house with one guy inside, and, uh, and you have it completely surrounded. Now, for a lot of listeners who listen to this podcast, I think you work in agencies where fielding 10 or 15 officers uh, in a matter of minutes is completely unrealistic, right? I know a lot of you out there, you know, don't have 10 or 15 officers who work a single shift. You know, your minimum staffing might be eight officers or seven officers. And, you know, it would be a very extraordinary situation where all seven or eight officers would show up to the same place. Then again, a bunch of you listen in agencies that have, you know, a shift that might be 12 or 15 people. And it would not be unusual at all to have a lot of officers show up very quickly uh, and be able to provide that kind of manpower. So for those of you who are out there who are used to handling calls, you know, on your own, where your backup is 20 minutes, 30 minutes away, or handling calls with maybe two or three officers, notice that immediately your case is going to be different than this, right? There's only a couple of you. And this idea that you could call in and get somebody to get a search warrant, I think also um, is very unusual, I think, for a lot of agencies. Most agencies, somebody's going to have to leave and go type up a search warrant and get the magistrate to issue the search warrant. It's not realistic here. Um, it was part of the record. The officers testified in this case that they called in to get a search warrant and that they got the search warrant delivered without ever leaving the scene. But if you couldn't do that, right, if that's not realistic, if it would take you, you know, 35 or 40 minutes to just drive to an office to type up this warrant, and especially if your magistrate's office then is not even located in your building, if you then have to leave your office and go to the magistrate's office, um, you're talking about delay of an hour and a half, two hours, that kind of delay might become unreasonable. Here, the court thinks it's important that these officers could have shown up on the scene, immediately called in, gotten a warrant, and still hit the door 45 minutes later if they had just requested the warrant. But that might not be a realistic for you, and that's important. The other thing that's important here is um, the length of time that passed. And I think this is an important lesson for you. You know, we've seen this in so many exigent circumstances cases that officers show up to a clearly dangerous situation, domestic assault, for example, and they're making a forcible entry into the residence. 
but which may have been appropriate or the court might have found would be appropriate if the officers had, for example, here, shown up to the scene of the attack, uh, talked to the people and witnesses in the scene in the parking lot. They had said, yep, there's a guy up there. He had assaulted the woman. They go up. They get up there. Hey, can we talk to you? She's got a busted lip. No. Can we come in? No. Are you okay? I'm fine. No one assaulted me. I'm totally fine. And the officers make the decision right there at the door. Um, no, you're not fine. There's somebody inside. We know he has a gun. Um, we're going to go in and make sure that you're okay. Right? That I think this would have been a different case if they'd done that. Now, I, I want to pause for a second. I'm not saying that that's the right move, right? And especially from an officer safety standpoint, I think that would be a very dangerous thing to do. But I think this case would have ended up differently if the officers had responded to it in a way that said, this is an emergency, we have to act now. Whereas here, they let 45 minutes pass, they wait for the, for the, um, for the, uh, um, the ballistic shield to show up. And we've seen other cases in domestic assaults where officers have said, this is an emergency, but let's talk to the sergeant, let's wait. So they go out to the parking, you know, they go out to the driveway, they wait for the sergeant to get there, they talk to the sergeant. And the court says, well, if this is such an emergency, if it's so urgent, why are you waiting time, letting time pass? Why are you walking away from the scene? Why are you um, having conversations with other people? If you can do all these things, if you can have these conversations, if you can wait for a ballistic shield and someone to show up, then, well, maybe you can wait for a search warrant too. Uh, and, the, and, and again, the court's not criticizing the officers. In fact, they say we don't criticize the officer's decision to wait for the arrival of the ballistic shield. Um, it, was, it was certainly reasonable. It was prudent. It was a good move. But the court here writes, and this is in a footnote, waiting for the ballistic shield delayed entry to the apartment, which undermines their claim that this is an exigent circumstance. That this is an emergency. And given the length of the delay, the court writes, the officers very well may have been able to obtain a warrant while waiting for the arrival of the ballistic shield, right? In other words, if you are willing to wait to talk to your sergeant, if you're willing to wait for uh, additional officers, if you're willing to wait for tactical equipment, then why is it that you're not willing to wait for a search warrant? What's different about the search warrant? Uh, why is it that this you couldn't wait for that as well? And there may be reasons for that, but you have to be able to articulate them. So here in this case, I think we get a better sense of why the court makes this decision. Uh, you know, I don't get paid to agree or disagree with these court decisions, but we are, uh, we do live in a world where we have to abide by them. And I think, I hope that this case is, a, is an interesting or useful insight into how the court applies those uh, exigent circumstances factors under Perez. So for today, that's all from me. That's all we're going to talk about for today. Do stay tuned. Next time, we're going to talk about these two new cases from the Virginia, from the U.S. Supreme Court on qualified immunity. They're really interesting cases. Uh, they, hand, they were handed down the same day by the U.S. Supreme Court, two unanimous decisions, and we'll check them out next time. For today, though, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on uh, SoundCloud, obviously. If you want us to be on another app, let us know. Um, if you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends, but today that's all from me. Stay safe and don't get captured.